Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Does anybody want breakfast? Guys, let's go. I'm leaving for McDonald's in five seconds. Why do you start with that? The Breakfast Stampede Meal. It's only at McDonald's, where there's a meal for every morning. And nothing says morning like a classic sausage McMuffin with egg. Right now, get this all-time favorite for just two bucks on the one, two, three dollar menu. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for a new episode of The Witching Hour. I'm Perry and this is Haley, and it's nice for it to just be the two of us. Yeah, it's always fun to catch up. I do love the recent guests that we've had and the upcoming guests we have. Yes, very but much. But it's also like, nice to have one-on-one chats with you. Always. <laughs> so we've got a very full agenda today that we should probably get to. This is going to be a Haunting of Bly Manor heavy episode. We are going to dig into some pretty intense spoilers here but we are going to give you a non-spoiler review first just in case you haven't seen the show but before we even go over there Haley has a lot of homework to do right now I am dumping it all on you what do you got for us I got stuff uh well first of all we want to tee up Nightstream, which kicked off uh it's a virtual film festival that uh Brought together a bunch of genre fest, North Bend, Brooklyn Horror, Boston Underground, Overlook, and um, Popcorn Frights all teamed up for this. What is, I haven't got to fully dig in yet, but it looks pretty incredible what they put together and definitely like one of the most innovative takes. I would say the most innovative take I've seen yet on what a virtual film festival can be. Mm-hmm. Um, really focused on community events as well as the films they're having you know nightly parties and trivia and uh all kinds of things that you love to do at a film festival online so i highly recommend checking that out they do they are selling individual tickets for certain showings and there are film passes but the witch hour is also making ourselves known there we we taped a special episode with the cast and filmmaker of Dinner in America, which was an absolute delight and will be available via uh, Nightstream and eventually on our channel as well. Absolute delight is a strong descriptor, but even that doesn't really capture how delightful that trio was. It was so much fun and it reflects how fun the movie is, I think. And I, I re- it's one of my favorite movies I've seen this year. I highly recommend you guys check it out. I don't think I'll ever get over my parents loving that movie. <laughs> like, that is one for the record books, and it makes me so happy. Well, it is. I mean, it, it's a little bit of a weird one, but it, it's a crowd pleaser, and it makes you feel good. It did No, it just goes to show it's a crowd pleaser for everyone. So yeah. Yeah, share it with everyone in your life. Don't hold back. Absolutely. <laughs> maybe children, don't show it to teeny tiny children. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. Um <laughs> They also have a few that I kind of singled out from when I reviewed Fantasia Festival. They have Detention, which is the one I described as Schindler's List and Silent Hill's Clothing. It's a very good spooky thing that turns into a very deep emotional story about uh, really heavy shit, man. But it's good. And they have obviously dinner in America. They have one called hunted that's worth checking out. And I haven't seen it yet, but since we just were uh, graced with the presence of Bria Grant, they have her film lucky there. And it's just a really cool lineup that I think reflects all the tastes of those different fests. And you should check it out and hang out in the virtual hangs. Um, And now that night stream is attended to, 
this would be the homework fairy was talking about. That's it. Ooh. (laughs) I feel like it's even more impressive when I can actually see it. I know. They are actually really impressive releases, all of which I'm still making my way through these packs because it's a lot of good stuff. But I will start with this um, special collector's edition, the A24 release of the Midsummer Midsummer Director's Cut. Uh, Came back. Came out a little while back, but mine came in a little late. And as you guys may have noticed, we've had a lot of guests. So uh, today's the first chance I have to kind of show you and talk about it. But as you guys know, I'm thoroughly obsessed with Midsummer. I've probably watched it at this point like 10 times. Like, no exaggeration. I just keep watching it. Uh, And if you are also obsessed with it and you haven't seen the director's cut yet, it's worth checking out. It is very long as the film itself is very long but includes some key scenes that help explain the mythology of the Harga a little more and fill in some gaps about what happened to some of the more minor characters. Uh, And this freaking release, you can get the director's cut online, I believe, but if you do get your hands on one of these, it is so beautiful. Like, this is the cover. This is the back. And then inside... First of all, look at this gorgeous disc. Oh, my. And then the whole book is, like, full of art from the film. It takes a lot for me to want physical media. I just tend to skew digital lately. But this is this is on another level. It's so beautiful. I don't even like, like opening it too much because I don't want to put anything up because it's just so beautiful. That is a me kind of thing to say. I respect that. And I'm not I'm not really a collector myself either. It's not that I skew digital or I just don't really collect things. Uh, but this I, I had to get my hands on. I love this. This is highest commendations. A twenty four sure knows how to package, man. They they are masters of that. Uh, and now I feel like we're having like a show and tell session and I love it. Well, it's a little bit of an unboxing, a little bit of a review. Um, so this one came out last month, uh, earlier in the month. The Alfred Hitchcock Classics Collection on 4K and it has Rear Window, Vertigo, Psycho, and The Birds. Um, so far, I've only had a chance to really delve into Rear Window. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, so I stopped there for I probably would have watched The Birds first, but I might be in the minority on that. I'm, like, weirdly obsessed with that movie. I like The Birds. I study Rear Window. Like, you think... Well, I can understand that. Um, But as you can see, this is also very beautifully packaged. Ooh, if you you could see if I did it right. Hey, look at that ring light. (laughs) (laughs) Not included in this disc assortment. Uh, but this is great, and each uh, each disc really comes with a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. Like, if you just since you brought up the birds, you can keep this bonus features list for that. Hey. Like, pretty significant. So if you are yourself also a big Hitchcock nerd, I definitely would recommend this, especially because they look freaking beautiful in 4K. I mean, they always look beautiful. But I really uh, – there are so – many releases of Hitchcock films and I already own many of them, but I still would recommend this one because uh, it does have really great presentation features. And again, that 4k, I mean, that's what the other ones don't have. Right. Uh, Pretty, pretty significant. Uh, And I just saw that that includes two versions of psycho psycho and psycho uncut. So I'll have that. Um, yeah, that has been a lot of fun and (laughs) such a dumb thing to say, but you know, so much of what we watch is strictly for, not strictly, but intentionally for work. So I do always love going back to older films because I'm like, this is just for me. Like I'm not going to have news. I get to enjoy these movies for me, but other one, and this is a bigger amount of films, is the 10-movie Blumhouse collection. Ooh! Yes. This came out late September. Um, it includes The Purge, Ouija, The Boy Next Door, Unfriended, The Visit, Split, Get Out, Happy Death Day, Truth or Dare, and Ma, which I think is such a fun and very random assortment of films. It really is. Um, the Boy Next Door is... 
is underrated fun. I enjoy it. I enjoy it too much. And so this one you can see has less in the way of like fancy packaging. It's really just the discs. But that is quite a hefty collection. And you kind of, I mean, you kind of took my key point, which was you should get it just to revisit the boy next door. <laughs> it was so fun. And that actually was the first one I went to on here. I appreciate we're, we're of the same mind on that one. Yes. And uh, this one does also have a, a, a bunch of bon- bonus features as well with um, commentaries and deleted scenes and all that good stuff, which I, I am happy to see on things like this because those bonus features are getting more and more rare on the actual, you know, movie to movie releases individually. So I really cherish those. And, you know, a lot of filmmakers say that's like their unofficial film school is that they watched all these commentaries and stuff. So it's super mm-hmm. valuable. Um, and that's also something I like about the randomish assortment here is you get a lot of commentaries for such different films for such different filmmakers. Um, yeah, I am having so much fun with these and they are all of all three that I just showed are currently available to buy. I I really would say they're all high quality. I I don't like I said I'm not the biggest collector so I might not be the person who knows exactly what's on this versus the former release, mm-hmm. but I have thoroughly enjoyed delving in and finding so many bonus features. It's just something I'm real passionate about. Bring back bonus features, y'all. Yeah, I like me some bonus features. I'm still waiting for the day where uh, more streaming services will restructure their interface to include a menu for bonus features. Oh, yeah. Well, Netflix has some of that, right? As does Disney+. Plus. Uh, if Netflix has it, it's a, a piss-poor assortment. <laughs> I got you have, like, some... Yeah, it is definitely this war. <laughs> yeah. And as for Disney Plus, I actually haven't spent enough time on like I was I was spending a lot of time on Disney Plus when it first launched, but I feel like and I guess it sounds like a little obnoxious cuz like press screeners, but I feel like I've been spending more time on screeners.com watching those movies yeah. instead of my Disney Plus account. Well, I just remember when they uh when they put up Endgame it had those bonus features, right? Mm. With, with the scene that Catherine Langford was in. Yeah, I think you're right on that. But I've also watched that scene on YouTube, so I feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect there for me. But this is like a little inside baseball, but part of the reason why I consider the Netflix interface home compared to other streaming services is because my Netflix account is also connected to the press element of it. Yeah. So I spend a significant like amount of time on Netflix, whereas I don't on other streaming services because those two entities aren't connected. No, absolutely true. And it's definitely like, well, this is inside baseball, but when they made that change, I was pretty like reluctant about it because now they're getting um, different types of data sets in their algorithm. They can now specify like what critics like and things like that. And I found that a little bit weird. Uh, but it certainly, from a practical standpoint, does make me watch those screeners first because they're so easy to get to. I I must agree with that. Um, and I think that that created a problem <laughs> with our next topic for me because I watched The Haunting of Bly Manor too many times before I ventured over to other screeners that I had to be watching. And I, I'm pretty sure you did something similar. How many times did you wind up watching the show? I've seen it all the way through twice. I probably won't watch it as much as you because I like truly get emotionally destroyed by it. I find that to be wonderful and it's an exceptional show. But I mean, with my full second rewatch, I started crying at episode five and genuinely didn't really stop until the end. I can understand that. I wouldn't say the waterworks didn't stop for me, but episode five is when like the emotional wrecking ball kind of comes crashing through. Before we even get into the details of the show, just for anybody out there who doesn't really know what this is, 
You probably heard of a show called The Haunting of Hill House. This is the sequel season, but it's an anthology. So we have some of the same cast members coming back. But if they do return, they're playing different roles. So this is a completely different story here. And this time around, Victoria Pedretti leads as a character named Danny. And she gets hired as the au pair for these two young kids who just recently lost their parents. And those kids live in Bly Manor. So... She goes to live with them to take care of them and spooky things start to happen. And just in non-spoiler territory, I thought this was phenomenal. On my personal review, I said it was one of the best ghost stories I've ever seen in my entire life with a little asterisk next to ghost story. And I want to delve into why I did that. But I think that's part of the reason why this show is so special. You guys know me. I love my jump scares and my visuals that keep me up at night, even though nothing really does. But the point is this show has a bunch of high quality scares that have such deep meaning and value to them. And they resonate with you so much that this show is going to weigh heavily on your mind well beyond just, let's say a jump scare or a disturbing visual. There are so many themes that ring a little too true and they are tough to shake, but in a good way when it all wraps up, I cannot recommend the show enough. Yeah. I think it's pretty inspired and incredible. And, uh, you know, the first season was based on Shirley Jackson's Hill House, as you might guess from the title. This one is based on Henry James turn of the screw. Um, but it also incorporates a ton of his other ghost stories, some in subtle ways, some, it's just the ghost story like is worked into this other larger ghost story um so henry james fans will have a lot to enthusiastically scope out in there and they're all pretty marvelously done mm-hmm. there was one that maybe i'll talk more about in spoilers that i wasn't sure totally worked for me the first time around and then the second time around i was like yeah nope that works I was wondering, I'm wondering, we'll find out if this is true. There's one episode for me where when it first started, I was kind of disappointed when I figured out what they were doing. But then all of a sudden that wound up becoming one of my favorite episodes. And I I wonder if it's the same thing. We will see. Yeah, it's uh, marvelous. Genuinely stunning and uh, oh gosh, so good. I can't agree more that it's one of the best ghost stories I've ever seen. I think it's it, it is a phenomenal work of gothic storytelling that it's like you can't (laughs) improve henry james but you can honor and it honors and lives up to in every way it's just holy shit man it's just holy shit i think that it's it's not you said there are a lot of scares i actually don't think it's very scary at all um like i don't think anything's scary i think it depends how how you define scary like i don't think i don't think it's jump scare scary i mean really now that i'm thinking about it are there any jump scares at all it i don't know this is this was this was a different kind of scary for me yeah kind of what i was gonna say like i don't i don't really find it scary at all but i find it haunting i find it occasionally chilling but it's just not trying to be that so it's not a fair like register to judge it on it's not trying to build be hill house again like they did that they did the straight up scary this is a different more emotional i mean it's he said it a bunch of times that was more of a horror story is more of a love story Mm -hmm. that was about using grief as horror this is about using ghosts to tell a love story and it's a freaking beautiful love story it It is it's beautiful. I will. I will tell you just to tease. There's there's one element of the afterlife that the show explores that that does scare me. Like those are the kinds of concepts that keep me up at night. I'll tell tell people more about that when we actually can. But I would never want to leave a non spoiler review of this show without just name dropping this friggin' fantastic cast. I'm obsessed with them. So you guys all know Victoria Petretti and Oliver Jackson Cohn and Henry Thomas. They all come back from the previous season. They're all great again. But here are more names that you're going to want to write down and look up everything else they're in. Amelia Eve. Holy shit. Tania Miller. Holy shit. Raul Coley. Like, 
freaking just like charm oozing off the screen. Yeah. I couldn't get enough of Owen. Uh, to hear Sharif is great too. I'm not even going to begin to explain what her character's up to for fear of spoiling it. And then the two kids in this, I cannot process how they're able to do what this show challenges them to do. Amelie B. Smith and Benjamin Evan Ainsworth, <clears throat> those kids are talented. They sure are. Uh, yeah, the cast is incredible. The Netflix has a, a always an incredible casting department, but I am consistently kind of blown away with their track record of casting mm-hmm. kids. And I know it's not the same casting directors on every show, but the casting directors they hire really have an eye for young talent that's kind of unmatched right now. I think I think that's definitely true of a lot of Netflix shows. I will say though, both. Hill House and now Bly have that because you know what happened when Hill House came out. It, it was like a full blown obsession where all I saw on the internet for weeks after that was fan art of all the characters and like a million BuzzFeed quizzes of like which Hill House character are you like all shit like that. There's an, a similar level of obsession that clicks in with this cast of characters, too, because one of the big things I was very nervous about when I heard about what Bly was, was the fact that. I had just grown so attached to the Crane family and I really didn't want to leave them. And that was on my mind in episodes one and two. And while I was definitely registering the fact that, hey, I'm liking this new story, it wasn't until episode three hit where all of a sudden something clicked where I felt a similar but new level of obsession with this ensemble where I completely forgot about the Hill House ensemble and I wasn't longing for what I had in the previous season. And the fact that they achieved that so well, I think speaks to how freaking talented Mike Flanagan and this entire team is. I had a similar thing, but it wasn't for the family. Like I, I vaguely remember we talked about this when we did our Hill House episode. I was like, They've been through enough. That's enough for the cranes. Yeah, it's true. Um, I did not miss them. I felt their story was complete, but I was missing that tone that we talked about, how this is tonally so different. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it took about two episodes for me to fully click over and be like, no, nah, never mind this rules. I'm super. Yeah. Into. Yeah. All right. So hopefully at this point you can tell that, that we both freaking love the haunting of Bly Manor. It is available to stream on Netflix right now. Please go check it out. And the good thing is you could stop this video. Like you could just leave it, go over to Netflix, watch the whole show. And then when you come back, it'll start right here. So just press pause, go away, and then come back because you know what time it is. Spoiler time. (sighs) Haley, I don't know where to begin. So I'm going to push that duty onto you. Where do you want to (laughs) start? Well... I guess that I would like to start with the sentiment we had that this is one of the best ghost stories I've ever seen and why I feel that way. And it does go into the whole, like, the way they managed to lace in so many of Henry James' stories into one overarching grand ghost story. I, it's like... As you can see, I struggle for words because I'm so impressed by the artistry behind that. Mm-hmm. Even more so because Flanagan, you know, didn't write and direct every episode of this season. It was a really a, a group effort with many talented voices involved. And yet it is so cohesive. Uh, when, you, when you factor in, like, so there are the ghosts of Blind Man, or all of whom, this time, unlike Hill House, we do get to learn how all of them got there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the details of it there's the lady in the lake which we'll talk more about there's what's happening with the uncle there's the tragedy of the parents and then the way that all of these individual stories loop in to become the beautiful ghost story of Danny is like one of the most gorgeous feats of gothic storytelling I've ever seen and I like I know again this is a completely different story, but when you think about it as it being a ghost story of Danny in a sense, it makes me think back to how Hill House was kind of a ghost story of Nell too, in a sense. And th- like this I know is a stretch. And I spoke to Victoria Pedretti and I just pitched her this idea and she's like, No. But <laughs> it, it was also because I was watching them back to back at a point. I watched mm-hmm. I rewatched Hill House and then I jumped back into this. 
but I can't, I got very, very hung up on the idea of, and spoilers for Hill House, mind you, if you haven't watched it, you know, in the bent neck lady, what happens to Arthur? And after Arthur passes, that's when Nell rushes back to Hill House. So I know Nell is the bent neck lady, but it was almost like Victoria Pedretti as like a performer was taking a cue from having left too late in that season. Mm-hmm. And then she leaves just in time. You know, like you kind of get the theme or the idea that I'm going, going with here, like trying to connect the two. <laughs> it's not, it's not like Nell killed Arthur, but just like the, just the timing of it all. And just the uh, like, especially for, for Danny, how it ties into this whole theme of like, loving someone and losing someone and the pain of losing, but also having that love having been worthwhile the entire time. I don't know. I was just kind of having fun finding those through lines. And also, you know, that kind of speaks to the general idea of how Mike Flanagan and now this bigger team that he's with here just build builds these worlds and builds these rules that aren't necessarily You know me at this point. I love well-defined rules. Give me a show Bible and I'll study the shit out of it. But I really appreciate in both seasons, and I think even more so in Bly, how the messiness of those rules well reflects our reality Mm -hmm. and kind of helps us process our reality more so by not having a clear-cut answer with what the characters are going through. And I needed that here. I... I found the rules to be clearer in Bly Manor than in Hill House, but only on a second watch. I was pretty confused the first time around. And then I think it speaks to what you're going to is that it's not, it's more existential. So the rules aren't as necessary. They clarify everything that needs to be clarified in episode. Mm -hmm. Like these people exist there because they are pulled into the gravity of Viola. As for, like, the dream hopping and all that, it's just their existence. It doesn't need rules. It's just showing us what it is to be a ghost. Yeah. But, I mean, in, in a sense, in a sense, though, the show does set out rules and it plays by them. It's like you, you, watch, you watch each individual ghost and they might operate differently, but... It, it's because they're all in a different stage of this ghost world. It's right. like Hannah's experience is so drastically different from Peter Quince with, with reason and with purpose and everything Hannah does well reflects the fact that she is brand new and first figuring this out. And it also, it also speaks to their individual goals too, and their history for that matter. Yeah, like everything that Hannah, everything Hannah had went through with Sam is kind of influencing how she's looking at Owen in a sense now. And driving her forward, whereas Peter Quint's trauma as a kid is basically, you know, leading to him doing all these terrible things now. Yeah. Well, and it just, it really fits for Hannah. You know, obviously, uh, Peter was immediately confronted grotesquely with the reality of his death. One of the sequences that really stood out to me second time around was the way his feet tumble down the stairs when she's Mm -hmm. dragging corpse and like what it would be like to watch your own body do that um but hannah also just getting straight back to work is so her yeah like because when you rewatch it's very clear that the moment uh danny gets there is literally right when she died mm-hmm. like Hannah died, danny shows up and she doesn't have time to process she just goes right back to work That was one of my favorite reveals of the show. And that's kind of like what I'm getting at where like Bly does have like an overarching set of rules and it always adheres to them. But I feel like there's also like another layer to those rules where they're very much tethered to the individual. And that wound up making the personal arcs even more powerful. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that. Well, because it is it the first season, I guess a bit through Nell but less so showed as the experience of being a ghost. It maybe showed as the experience of becoming a ghost more so, as opposed to this showing like their concept of what it means to live in this sort of hellish disappearing afterlife. Yeah. That's probably a good way, a good way to differentiate the seasons. Because there's really nothing that shows us that in the first one. It, it just, 
makes us empathize towards it more than put us in the headspace of how they are trapped being pulled from memory to memory. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty hellish. Well, yeah. What I was hinting at when we were in the non-spoiler section, as far as the thing that, that kind of kept me awake at night is the idea of, you know, and in particular, Peter Quint, I hope, I hope I'm a better person than Peter Quint, but the idea of like this show's version of hell being him trapped in a repetitive memory. That's, that's his worst memory he's ever really experienced. That is, that, that's, that is terrifying in and of itself, but so is that concept when you extend it to the other characters. It's like, even though Hannah is going back to things that were maybe like wonderful, like her meeting Owen for the very first time, watching those things like morph and fade is wildly disturbing. Yeah. It's very, again, existential. It rings true uh, to the human experience the way memory can be corrupted even the best memories by what you know what happens after um and i yeah peter i have not much sympathy for him but uh i I have empathy not much sympathy yeah i I had something i wanted to say about all this dream ah ha 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 something that worked for me very well both times i'm one of the it's not quite fear but dread i guess one of the bigger moments of dread i felt was tied into the idea of being trapped in your worst memory and when they were threatening to do it to danny and us knowing what her worst memory is and that it had already been haunting her for years was like deep dread and that was a moment one of many moments that made me realize how great the overall structure was of the show it's like really everything had purpose i can't think of anything that wound up being you know a throwaway small storyline or even like a little detail here or there like everything weighs heavily on your mind down to you know even some of the ghost figures that aren't really big parts of the show where it's more of like a like a visual thing that you never forget mm-hmm. um the one thing that didn't work for me the first time around is that I came around on was the use of the jolly corner with um, Henry Thomas's character, the uncle. Okay. Uh, I just thought like, I was like, yeah, I get it. You wanted to do the jolly corner, but this is a bit out of place for me in this universe. Like the idea of an evil double just manifesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Totally didn't have that problem second time around. Really enjoyed that episode. It, it it worked. I don't know. I guess it just stuck out like a sore thumb the first time, but then knowing it was coming, it totally worked for me. Hmm. Yeah, that so is that what you were hinting at in the, yeah. the Okay. No, that actually that wasn't mine, but like I definitely understand where you're coming from with that. I was kinda like, whoa, when that happens, because you know, we we do see all of these other supernatural-ish things at play before, and this doesn't necessarily align with them all as clearly. The one that really threw me for a loop, also because at this point in the show, I was so attached to you know, the folks working at Bly, all I really wanted to do was spend more time with the four of them and the two kids. Like I could have, I probably shouldn't say this after experiencing what they go through, but I could have just lived in Bly with them for the extent of the season. But then we get that flashback episode as episode eight. And when it first started and I realized what they were doing, especially when you consider what the cliffhanger was in episode seven, I'm like, no, no, I don't want that now. Don't give that to me. And it's a ghost story within a ghost story and it's a full story, even though it's a small part of this whole. And one of the coolest parts of that is how it then affects episode nine, because that's the point where you really get like a heaping dose of Viola's rage and you could feel it radiating out throughout the rest of the series. And it does that a little too well. I, So I understand what you're saying about when you first started it, because it does change from such a cliffhanger to such a flashback about characters we've only, like, kind of heard of before. There is definitely, like, how dare you? (laughs) Uh, But it is one of my favorite episodes of TV ever. I, I think it's so phenomenal. And it is, I mean, they just shoved the romance of certain old clothes into turn the screw and somehow it works perfectly 
uh, this goes back to like, how is this such a good feat of ghost storytelling? Um, and it's interesting because in a sense, that is kind of the finale episode and the finale is more of an epilogue. Mm-hmm. And it works so well and it shouldn't work so well because that is the core. Like you have to know that story for any of it to make sense. And it doesn't come till episode eight, which is just marvelous that that works. Uh, Same with like Peter. um, And I'm so, I just forgot her name, the former governess. Thank you. Yes. With Peter and Bex aren't even introduced until three, I think. And then they end up being such essential, pivotal characters to this story. I don't know. The way that this season takes its time mm-hmm. and plays the cards before knocking them over is just beautiful. There's so many things I want to talk about. I don't want to forget anything. I feel like two points that I I wanted to make. You said this was episode eight was your favorite. I think five might have been my favorite. Very good. That's and you know to to be fair and to be honest here that's the episode that I've rewatched the most mainly because of the Tania Miller interview and I was basically inspecting the entire thing and that was also the first like hefty dose of skipping and memory jumping that we really get to experience and like that's where the rules started to fascinate me and I wanted to know everything but like even that episode in and of itself is such a devastating little character study and just watching Tania Miller navigate that whole episode, I mean, they really, they, they had a lot of heavy lifting for something like that. And then another thing, I want to go back to Peter Quint, because I don't have any sympathy for that man either. And what he does, what he does to uh, Rebecca, Bex, Miss Jessel, whatever you want to call her, that, that is fucking evil. Yeah, like, it sure is. He... He he basically tricked her, and and the thing is, I can't wait to launch the full episode with uh, of Collider Connected with Oliver Jackson Cone. But I asked him this question. I'm curious what your take is. So, the the whole idea of me, you, us, they shared that moment together. Does that mean if he hadn't chosen to drown her, he then could have walked off the property? But he chose to drown her and then peace out. So she gets that has to deal with the last moments of being drowned. I had the same question because that was their plan with the kids, right? It was then if they, if they shared that connection. I think that is it. And which makes it even sadder because I do think that in like, maybe in that, in that moment. So here, here's my theory. In that moment, the drowning moment, he was under the impression that saying you, me, us would have given him enough control, at least to have her like to do that to her so that they could be together forever. And then maybe that led to the discovery that there was enough to then get off the property by inhabiting the kids. But also that could speak to the state that the kids are in in the final episode where they say the kids aren't holding on to the memory. It could it could just be like a like a youthful thing where they're more malleable and give them more control. You know what I mean? I think my take is that he's a manipulative fucking liar with no conscience. And that was always his plan was so that they could both have bodies and be together that way. I don't think he ever intended to share the space with her inside her. Um, at, Cause even she's like, you lied and uh, this isn't what I agreed to. I, I, I don't, I don't think that that was ever a plan to like harmoniously be together inside. Oh, no. her. I, I don't, I don't either. I think it was definitely using the, the knowledge that he had attained thus far to kill her to guarantee that the two of them are together on the Bly property, but then he kind of used that as leverage to, or, or more information to figure out the rest of his plan. Because I think they say it at one point, he's constantly like out and about and exploring and gathering information and figuring out the system. So I think that was just like one part of it that led to that next step. I think he always had that plan. I, I just, I see that character in a very dim light. Um, and that is truly what he does to her, the way that he leaves her to die alone is one of the most haunting things I've ever seen. It is scary in that way where it's not a jump scare. It's just going to stay with me. You know what I think makes it even scarier? Mm-hmm. I I really believe he really loved her. And I also, 
And I also believe they really loved each other. And the idea, like, it's one thing to show me a super villainous character do something to someone that they've manipulated without any of that love in the mix. But when you talk about someone wholeheartedly loving someone, still being able to commit something like that, I mean, that, that just, that's friggin' shattering. Well, it's like they say in the show, right? The wrong kind of love. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that really made it, I don't know, just devastate me is how then when the lady in the lake has Flora and she's taking her into the lake and Miss Russell like tucks her away and says, I'll feel this. So you don't have to after yeah. what you just went through. That was the first on my first watch. That was the first thing that made me go. Ah! <laughs> like deep loud cries. Cause that is so awful and beautiful and generous and terrible. Yeah. <sighs> It's it it really it really really is. Um, but maybe we should talk about the right kind of love too, yeah. <laughs> which was which was nice to see that on display. But it you know there, there's definitely a bittersweet quality to it that that hurts. Ain't that life though? I know it's true, and that's that's like one of the big things that you know, shines in the show so much, the more I discuss it is, you know, we all imagine supernatural horror stories to be something completely out of the realm of possibility. But by exploring those ghosty elements, it so well reflects some very, you know, human real world challenges that we have to deal with and learn how to process. And that is why I appreciate not just the show, but almost all forms of art. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that's, I keep saying, like, these really high words of praise, but it is one of my favorite love stories I've seen in a long time. Um, I think it's played just right, and like everything else in the show, they take their time to get there, yeah. build up their relationship, uh, and then just, it is, <laughs> I don't know, like, it is, to me, fairly reflective of how I live all of my life, because I've like experienced death fairly young for the first time. Every person that I love is attached to this sadness forever, knowing that it won't last. And uh, I guess hoping it's not you who goes first, right? But uh, it's so beautifully done in a way that doesn't feel morose or <laughs> indulgent or self-pitying, simply to say that, this is what it means to love somebody. Your time will come to an end, but one day at a time and every day is worth it. I think um, a big part of the reason it never gets too morose is because of Amelia Eve's character, Jamie. Not, not just because of the romance between Jamie and Danny and how moving that is in general, but also kind of the way that Jamie looks at everything. Like, that conversation about the moonflower, I'm like, oh, like I needed this to understand other things. Yeah, I, I, I deeply relate to that character, a, a little gay lady who wants nothing to do with people and just wants to plant. I'm into that, uh, and that 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 moonflower scene is longer than I remembered it being when I rewatched. That speech is, oh my God, talk about heavy lifting. They really put a lot on her in that moment. They gave her time. Mm -hmm. I mean, wow. And it's beautiful and it's worth the time. But I mean, that so she is, I mean, for all intents and purposes, a supporting side character. And you don't usually get that kind of monologue for that kind of character, you know? Yeah. That I mean, that was one of the best surprises, though, I think, is that she was the sporting side character who really wasn't. I know. It is actually kind of her story at the end. And it also, it, I mean, it very much is. And it and it also, like, it wasn't even her saying the right things to Danny. I also loved the scenes that she had with uh, Tahira Sharif as Miss Jessel when, when she's trying to nudge her in the right direction, too. Yeah. It's just, like, that character of, of Jamie turned out to be one of, like, the biggest sources of like encouraging concepts and, and just like probably one of the most purest human beings. I know she's like, 
she's like the good part of my brain. Like I, I relate to her in the sense that like, this is the part of my brain that is functional. Um, I wish that was the overriding part of my brain, but that stuff that she says to Miss Jessel, where she's like, this is your opportunity you've been waiting for. You just can't see it. Like it is that inner voice. You kind of wish you had all the time, right. Just to talk some sense to you. Yeah. And that, that was, that was one of my favorite beats in that particular scene too, is when she, f- she first walks up to her and she says, it's like something to the effect of, I know I would want someone to tell me this. So I feel I need to tell you this and like, not to get too personal, but like, that's, that's an idea I want to apply to my life. I want to have that effect on someone. And if I need to be reminded of that in a show like this, like give that kind of stuff to me all day long. Yeah. I do. I, I really the casting again, not to harp on it, but like, where did they find her? How do you, it's like such a big Netflix show. And Tania Miller, she's so, so I, I know how they found her because she's incredible and respected and known. And, but like, Amelia Eve is such a discovery. Well, you know, the story of Victoria Pedretti from the first season. I don't remember it if I do know. Um, I, I think I, I like blabbed to her about it a little too much and I probably shouldn't have included one part of it, but it's on the, it's on the commentary from Flanagan from Hill house. Apparently what happened, I'm going to try to recap this, right? Like she had never booked a job, didn't even have a headshot and submitted a self tape. And then it was something like 11 PM the night before they were about to cast someone else in the role and then picked her instead. Wow. And that was it. Yeah, that's a great point. She really was an out of nowhere discovery. Literally out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> and like when you look at how much she's accomplished since. Yeah, that's why I didn't think of it. That, the real, I mean, to be fair, the only reason I'm thinking of it is because of Ladies Night and the, the absurd oh amount God. of research that I put into that show, which is the only reason I know more about Victoria Bedretti and Tania Miller right now compared to Amelia. <laughs> uh there's something that Vinny said in his review, which is lovely, and you should all go read it on Collider. It's really well written. But he spoke about how her performance uh, shows how, I'm going to misquote, but basically a strong wind could send her into an anxiety attack, but it only makes the character seem stronger, not weaker. The fact that she's dealing with that uh, and still getting through. Uh, that that really resonated with me because she is at all times about to break down and it only makes you see how the you know sort of like courage isn't the absence of fear it's like getting past it yeah her courage by continuing to live through that struggle that's that's a very eloquent way of putting it like I I definitely saw it in other moments where you know, I feel like that's why the Moonflower speech has so much weight to it also, because it's not a character that's like, look on the bright side, it'll all be fine. Like she recognizes like the bad and how that ups the value of the good and why you need to appreciate the good more. And I feel like that's why a lot of her stuff just like it felt like thoughts, ideas, information that I wanted to put in my back pocket and take with me. Yeah, it's a very emotionally honest show. Mm-hmm. It is, I I think that there is a, a thread to think, trying to think about it. There is a group of people I've seen online who consider Flanagan's work a bit saccharine, touchy-feely. Um, I disagree. I, I don't think that it's, I think it's always honest and I don't think it lets you off the hook. I think it says you have to live with this. I I think that life can still be good, even living with it. Which is like the exact the exact way I would describe Jamie as a specific character. Like right. I, th- I think she kind of encapsulates that all, and that that's probably how I would also describe his work in general. Yeah, I on these two seasons. I think that there's other movies too. Sometimes to think that like if something's emotional, that means it's it's. Uh, like touchy feely, like happy, not as not as hardcore horror or something. I don't really agree with that. See, see the, the thing is, that's the more hardcore horror to me. It's <laughs> like I could watch like splatter stuff all day long, and then I could have a real restful night of sleep. But you give me stuff like bye, and like I'm done for a week after. Yeah, and and I don't think. 
that it's dishonest to say that even though things may be awful and scary and you may have grief, that you can still find happiness. I mean, like that to me doesn't sound twee. That just sounds like good fucking advice. Yeah. I think, I think we kind of, I mean, I think that also reflects the bookends of this show too. And, and the choice that older Jamie makes in the end to share the story with Flora the night before she gets married but it's also like I, I don't know if you caught this in the slack, but the interpretation of what's what's happening there. Mm-hmm. So I think that by using her middle name in the story, that Jamie was basically giving older Flora the opportunity to kind of take it or leave it. Like she was presenting the story at a distance, so that if she she wasn't ready for it, she could steer clear of it. Or she can fully embrace these things that they learned and really did go through and then apply it to her life going forward. And, you know, like she took she basically took it and ran with it without going like, hey, remember all this shit from your childhood for your wedding? Yeah, like I, I kind of respected the choice to like hide that little thing in there and make the idea reachable for her. No, I think it's lovely. And I, I mean, if I had any like universe rule questions it would be why the hell is she at her wedding if she doesn't remember her um but i'm sure there's a like they kept in touch for some reason yeah well they did they definitely did keep in touch yeah but because even in between years like you know owen was updating them and everything yeah but then they were like oh we haven't seen him in an age and he's like well here's what's going on I don't, yeah. it's fine. It works. It's the only thing I was like, well, should be at their wedding. Um, but it's easy enough for me to be like, well, they forgot her. And then for some reason they got back together. I don't like they met up again. They had a reunion. Yeah. No, I can, I can understand some question marks there. I, I think it's because when I think of major life events like that, and I think about who I would invite to my wedding, it would be like, like, I would want someone from every stage of my life. Well, it's also, it's also, um, uh, their dad, like Henry Thomas's character remembers. He doesn't forget. Oh, right. Yeah. It's just the kids. So that, that would definitely be like at least a, like a catalyst for keeping them connected. Maybe not in the truest sense, sense of what they experienced as children, but Keeping the network going. It is not the type of nitpick I like to make. I was just being honest. Like, if I do have one thing that I'm like, mm, it's that. But I, it's not so irrelevant to the rest of the story and the emotional impact of it. Can I ask you some questions that I posed in the interview just to give you get your take on it? Yeah. Well, so Vi- Viola and Danny do the you, me, us thing. Leave the property. Viola's in Danny. Why do you think that Viola started to reemerge at that particular time after that period of time of the two of them being able to live happily together? You know, I think that's maybe something I just accept as universal truth versus trying to rationalize it because it's yeah. just meant to be the axe hanging over your head, right? It, it's the sense that all good things must end. Um uh, yeah, I don't, I haven't ascribed any logic to that. I was trying to look for like little trigger points on my rewatches. Like, you know, you know how like the visual of the child on the bed was a big thing for Viola. Like not necessarily that exactly, but something along those lines to like slowly draw her out. Hmm. And I wonder if there was a, perhaps like, well, it wasn't peace because she says very clearly that this thing she feels inside of her isn't at peace, that it's full of rage. Um, I was going to say perhaps that finally getting out of that fucking lake was nice enough to make her kick back for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that that is that's definitely one way to look at it. <laughs> like, how long you been doing that? Yeah, I'll take a vacay inside your beautiful life. You could also look at it from Danny's perspective, too. I mean, you know, even though she was living living happily with Jamie for a while, like, the idea of fighting for with another individual for your own body has to be exhausting. And maybe it was kind of, you know, like like her just being broken down after a while. I think that plays for me a lot because it also, you know, when we meet Danny, she's very tormented by 
um, grief and, and, um, you know, troubled psychology. And I, Flanagan does often use his supernatural for, uh, an expression of, of psychological issues and how they will come for you or, or can come for you. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that works a lot better. The idea that, that her defenses broke down over time in the sense that, you know, sometimes your grief will get the better of you or, you know, man, I know you're well, like the, the idea of, you know, your grief could get the better of you. And like, it's not, it's not necessarily wrong. Like, I feel, I feel like the show just like further emphasizes that that kind of process and experience is, is natural and okay. And that that's kind of one of the reasons why I find like, even though, again, it is a very emotionally devastating show, the way they address things like that felt comforting to me. Like, even though it hurt a little, it felt comforting. Oh, I think it's fantastic and honest. And it, you know that my one problem with the ending of Hill House is that I found it dishonest. Um, it, it was like, it reminded me of the Silver Linings playbook where they were like, and then they were fine. Yeah. No, that is not how trauma works. Um, so this to me was the perfect ending, which is, you know, more so that you can find your way back to that happiness, but trauma does last and mm -hmm. you will have to deal with it. And it doesn't mean you're going to go die in an icy lake, but just like when you build up your happiness, that might not last forever. Mm -hmm. I just wanted them to live happily ever after. Well, they, they lived happily for a while. And I know, I know. More than most people get. And, and yeah, like yeah, I'm like pulling questions from my interviews because they're they're like right on the top of my mind. And this one I knew the answer to, but I kind of wanted to hear Victoria Pedretti say it just because she's the person who played the character. It's more valuable coming from her than me. But the idea of if Danny could go back to that very first meeting and whether or not to take the au pair job, if she knew what her fate was going to be, would she take the job? And the whole point of the show is, fuck yeah, she would take that job. She found the love of her life. And that's the point. She found the love of her life. She found the way to be her true self. Mm -hmm. uh, and Danny is from the very beginning introduces herself as a character of service who wants to help other people. She set free how many souls? Yeah, uh, prevented that many more souls being taken. Absolutely, of course. I think she. When you describe it like that, she might be one of the best on-screen heroes I've seen all year, oh. if not more beyond that. <laughs> Absolutely. Speaking of which, so, you know, I always like point out when I think uh, actors are headed for a superhero suit, as I say it, um, I was thinking that about her, but I actually think she would be an incredible fit for Star Wars because like she's going on to do great things. And I could totally see her playing a space lady and bringing some weird energy to it. She's so freaking talented. Like, it, yeah. like it's just like there, there are certain and actually a lot in this particular show where my like my brain just like fizzles out because it hurts to try to comprehend how they can do what they do. This role is hard, 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 hard. I mean, we talk about how great Amelia Eve is, and she is, but her role is so easy to like. How could you not yeah. like Jamie? It would be so easy to be annoyed by Danny and be like, just get your shit together, lady. But she, yeah. does, she like like Vinny said, she makes it look like strength. Mm -hmm. and oh, so good. She she really has that kind of work cut out for her in both seasons too. Yeah. So when you when you see the work she delivers and like I, I'm sure they had fun making both seasons, but I I would just be emotionally exhausted if I had to be in that headspace like one after the next with with you in between and everything that character is carrying around. I mean, she, uh, I hope, takes time to herself because even, I don't know if you watched you season two. Yeah, we talked about it. Yeah. Uh, that was no walk in the park either. No, no. <laughs> I, I, I feel like, again, be, uh, without spoiling anything in you, with, with how that character appears and like what she's carrying with her, the combination of the two seems very, very challenging to me. Yeah. She's, she's a gifted lady and I, I do hope she takes care of herself. <laughs> well, she seemed fine the other day. So oh whatever that's worth. Um, is there anything else we want to hit before we wind this down? 
Uh, there's so much to talk about. I do feel like we hit most of the main stuff. I, I want to give one more shout out to Tahira Sharif, who is another one that I think is kind of, you know, like falling to the wayside of the smaller roles in the ensemble. But I think she also does a lot with maybe not as much screen time as some of the other characters get where Miss Jessel could have very easily been in that like a similar situation that you were just expressing with Danny, where you could be like, like. Just, like, leave Peter Quint. Why are you even doing this to yourself? I think she does a very good job conveying why she keeps gravitating back towards him. Like, I don't necessarily approve of the decision she makes, but she at least made me understand why she's doing certain things. Oh, she's fantastic. I mean, it's not like... I thought it was wonderful. Uh, Abusive relationships never make sense. Like, it's never... It's exactly what they show. It's like really horrible behavior followed by someone making you feel like a princess and sucking you back into all that <laughs> charm and warmth and love and then cutting it off again. Um, I thought that was phenomenally done. And, you know, just because of the connection in terms of um, depicting the relationship side of abuse, although I think uh, The Invisible Man was excellent, I do think did find it underwhelming in the depiction of that element. Mm-hmm. Like it showed what it was like not to be believed, but not what it was like to be pulled into that. And I thought that this really nailed that whole experience. And yeah, she was, she was outstanding. They both were, he, he, it's hard to make that character charming in spite of what he does. And he does a very good job of it. You can see why she continued to fall for him. Yeah. You know, like, again, like he's, Peter's freaking evil. He's really evil. But for Oliver Jackson Cohn as an actor to be able to have that sorry that he expresses to Miles at the end actually means something. Yeah. I don't know. It just like shows what that guy, what Oliver Jackson Cohn is capable of, of conveying as an actor. And yet again, I was very impressed by him and he's like another one, like give me more stuff with him in it strapping lad as well my goodness so, and also super fucking kind and thoughtful and an absolute pleasure to talk to I have oh, to, add that. to hear that I, let me tell you this this show has spoiled me in that department that's wonderful I I mean I we both met Flanagan he's a very kind man it doesn't surprise me that he surrounds himself with kind people yeah you definitely see that. I mean, we haven't even name-dropped any of the directors on this. Like, I was so happy to see E.L. Katz involved, and he directs one of, like, one of my favorite episodes, and, like, there, there are just so many talented people. Liam Gavin, like, like I gotta, I gotta give oh, him a shout-out, Like, you, we both love him, but The Altar of the Dead was my favorite episode of the season, and he directed two of them, and that was one of his, and I cannot applaud him enough. No, there's so much exciting talent. And this goes back to what I was saying, that it just makes me more impressed that this wasn't the work of one author. It's like such a collective effort. And I actually think it served the show well, in particular for ep- like examples being episodes five and eight. Like They do manage to bring in other creators and still make it feel all a part of one whole. But the episodes that needed a little unique touch to them, it got it. And it yeah. needed that balance, and they made it work so well. And I also have to single out uh, Axel Carolyn, who directed The Romance of Certain Old Clothes, which mm-hmm. is, I, just, honestly, the, that episode should not work as well as it does. It, that episode is really freaking good. It's like, even just even just hearing you say the title, which, like, the title was something that was revealed late in the game, but... And and, and for, at first, when I was just scrolling through the Wikipedia page recently when they had updated it, I'm like, really? like, really? What's the big deal? Why did they have to hide that? No, they had to hide that title because the second you just uttered it, I have a very specific visual in my brain. Yeah. And that visual is terrifying but mighty exciting at the same time. It's just great. They really I, – I like the idea – we talk about this a lot on the show – but, you know, taking something that a more established filmmaker has built and using it to prop up and establish uh, up and coming voices, I think is a really powerful part of the horror community. Mm-hmm. And I, I love to see a platform as large as Netflix and, and what Mike Flanagan has brought to that, um, embracing that ethos. 
Yep. I, I am definitely with you on that. Should we wind this down? I feel like we don't have much of a choice. I know. Um, I'll just do some more shameless plugging before we close out this episode. Mm-hmm. If you want more Bly Manor talk, there, there's so much spoiler content that you're probably going to want to read on Collider across the board. The team did such a friggin' good job just, like, banding together and really, you know, parsing through everything. And there's a lot of great reads on the site right now. We have video interviews, too. Two episodes of Ladies' Night. The Tania Miller one is up and running now. Victoria Pedretti will be coming your way later next week. And Oliver Jackson Cohn's Collider Connected should be up and running fairly soon, if it's not already on the YouTube channel. Haley, is there anything in particular you want to plug pertaining to your Bly Manor work? Oh, I'll be writing about the old lady in the lake and... uh you know, why I think it's such a spectacular ghost story. Um, and honestly, it's not me who's doing the heavy lifting with this one. Every, you guys wouldn't believe how many different people on the staff we have doing interviews and writing about this show. Like, if you want to read about Bly Manor, you got Bly Manor content. <laughs> kind of ridiculous. Um, yeah, I, I just, I am pretty obsessed with the character of the lady in the lake how it figures into the overall story and how that episode shows how you go from being a human to being a void and the process of that emotional transformation in in why ghosts last centuries and do these inexplicable things i so yeah, it really is. All right, guys. That's our that's our Bly conversation. One more plug for you. Sunday, 2.15 p.m. Eastern. That's when our night stream episode with the Dinner in America team goes live over there. So do check that out. You can get double uh, witching hour this week. How nice would that be? But you're also going to get to see that eventually. So that's it. We're out of here. Goodbye. You've officially survived the witching hour. Hello, Chico Pitbull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary.